Welcome to Feminist Popcorn, the celebration and growing archive of the greatest movies about women. I'm Samantha Rare, here with my co-host Elizabeth Frankel, and we're here to talk Body of a Girl, Mavion Rose, The Fits, and Real Women Have Curves. happy that we're getting back into our old routine of things. Bread and butter. Yeah. Three fabulous movies that you may have never heard of. That, Probably haven't heard of. Yeah, that we would love you to be familiar with because they're beautiful. I like that we had our big blockbuster mega movie series and now we're back to these fabulous little indie gems. Yeah, exactly. And I really like this theme at the beginning of the new year. I think it feels sort of like fresh. It feels like getting down to the bare bones of like what it means to be a woman Mm. starting in girlhood and our relationships with our bodies in girlhood Mm. are sort of defining moments of our entire lives. Mm. I was excited to go into this episode just talking about, you know, the visual aspects of their bodies, the functionality of their bodies. And that's really not what any of these movies are actually about. It's really about self-esteem. And that's interesting to suggest that if you have a body, you're going to have opinions about it, and there are probably going to be negative opinions. (laughs) Sure. And other people are going to have opinions about your body as well. Your negative opinions about your body are entirely curated by other people's negative opinions about your body. Mm -hmm. But to clarify, this episode isn't going to be like a bummer. It's going to be really fun. I think specifically (laughs) because these movies are so fucking good. Right. It was a particular joy to watch these three movies this week. I agree. They're so easy to watch. You can just bathe in the artistry of these movies. I also appreciate... A story told succinctly. These are all three nice little short movies. Crisp. Yeah, crisp. To the point. Mm-hmm. Especially after last episode, which was like 12 <laughs> hours of torture. <laughs> Good torture. Of watching torture, not torture for us to watch exactly. the movies. <laughs> of observing torture <laughs> being portrayed. <laughs> Yeah, I made a note that two of these movies in length equals like one and a half Hunger Games. (laughs) Last week's episode was like three times the time commitment than this episode. Right. Okay, you just want to jump in, Sam? You just want to jump in the deep end? Yeah, I'm in the deep end. Watch (laughs) as I dive in. (laughs) Mavian Rose. Wrong movie. I know. That's Mavian Rose. (laughs) I hope none of you watched Love on Roses. I mean, it's amazing, but that's not the movie we're going to talk about today. <laughs> this week, we're talking about a different French movie. Belgian, actually. Oh, I'm so sorry. It's... We're watching a different movie spoken in French. Yes. It's a Belgian-French collaboration movie. It was filmed in France by... A Belgian filmmaker. A Belgian filmmaker, exactly. So Mavian Rose was released in Belgium in 1997. It was written and directed by Alain Berliner and co-written by Chris van der Stappen. And it stars Georges Dufresne as Ludo. It's just so good. It's I just really love watching this movie. Yeah, it's striking. It's also striking that it was made in the 90s. I kept thinking simultaneously how far we've come mm-hmm. since this movie and also 
how not far we've come. Right, like how relevant it still is. Yeah. For example, I think the global conversation around transness has come so far Mm -hmm. since 1997 when the movie came out. Certainly when you look up synopses of this movie, which were probably written in the 90s to accompany the movie, Mm -hmm. it talks about Ludo with he, him pronouns. Right. That Ludo thinks he's a girl. Right, a boy who thinks he's a girl. Yeah. Which is just language that either is or should be completely obsolete by now. Right. But then again, I think that, I think the kind of community that's portrayed in the film is really recognizable Mm. to contemporary neighborhoods all over the world. So let's start at the very beginning because I think the opening of this film is breathtaking. Yeah. When the movie starts, we start with this beautiful sort of sexy music. It sort of reminded me of... Welcome to the Dollhouse, how she had this very mature adult musical theme that followed her. Mm. That to me was how this movie started as well. That we start with this very adult music that she's sort of imagining her dream world playing with her dollhouse Mm -hmm. as Pam, basically, as her hero. Yeah. As this sophisticated, beautiful, sexy, older woman. And that brings us into the life of a child, surprisingly. Yeah, I think the Welcome to the Dollhouse comparison is interesting because both are this sort of just off-center of reality depiction of suburbia. This opening really reminded me of Edward Scissorhands as well. I had the same note. Yeah. (laughs) Yay. The colors are so saturated. They're so bright. You see all of these men zipping up their women, which just feels very mechanical and weird. And you just see all the different couples in this neighborhood. And the fact that they all arrive at the party at At the the same same time time is so theatrical and stylized. And it almost resembles reality, but it isn't. Mm -hmm. It's interesting. The color palette that we start the movie with Mm -hmm. and the kind of ridiculous decorations at their garden party before they've even moved into their house. Yeah. They have these paper strips and flowers and a gazebo. It sort of mirrors the fantastic colors in Pam's world. Mm. And so we're sort of saying that these two worlds are artificial in a really similar way. It's almost like these families live in dollhouses, similar to the one that Ludo plays with. Totally. And clearly this entire world is colored in pink. And pink is a very interesting theme. I know that sounds weird because it's a color, but pink holds a lot of weight in this movie. When you see pink, what it represents. And it made me reflect on my own relationship to pink. Because when I was a kid, I loved pink. I had pink a lot in my room. But looking back now, I don't think it's because I subjectively liked it. I think it's because I associated it with a femininity that I aspired to and that I knew I naturally didn't have. You know, like I wasn't Mm. naturally a feminine little kid, but because I wanted to be or thought I should be, I really pushed myself to have pink stuff, to wear pink, to buy pink. And now pink is just such a boring color to me. And I feel confident enough in my own gender identity to admit that. I think even deeper than that, I feel as though pink was assigned to me as a child. I was given a pink bedroom before I had the ability to choose a color for my bedroom. Oh, oh, that's interesting. Right? Yeah, no, I chose it because I thought I was supposed to. Mm. And I mean, you watch like the absolute worst thing in the world right now, gender reveal parties. (laughs) 
where you like cut open a cake and it has a blue or pink filling and you find out the sex of your baby, which is A, transphobic, B, completely ridiculous that we're assigning colors to genders. I think that the phrase Mavian Rose, my life in pink, Mm -hmm. refers to Ludo seeing her life through rose-colored glasses. Mm. She does have this bright optimism she loves life yeah but it also refers to an inherent femininity that we associate with the color pink because the world does Mm. there was even a barbie i had who was like rock star barbie you know she came with a guitar and Mm -hmm. she was like cool she had a leather jacket and that barbie box came with a tape you know back when we like used cassette tapes and the cassette tape was the song of this rock star barbie and the song was called think pink and i would play this all the time when i was a kid and so it was sort of like in josie and the pussycats right they're like giving you subliminal messages about what to buy and how to think (laughs) i was actually instructed at a young age to think pink and i would play this song all the time and i sort of think opposite from you i love pink oh great i think it's like the most beautiful color and i sort of think that as women we have the privilege to like pink whereas boys and men have a weird stigma where they're not allowed to like pink. Totally. I wish that pink were more universally beloved as a color. that's nice. I think we'll get into that a lot about rules of masculinity feeding into the same kind of patriarchy that oppresses women. Something else that pink is is body parts. My favorite use of pink in the world is when I look at someone's flushed cheeks. Like I'm looking at you right now and your cheeks are quite pink. You're just like a pink person. I'm a very pink person. And so I like when pink comes up in nature. And what else is pink? Genitals are pink. You know, like I think it ties back into the point of this episode and the point of this movie, which is exploring this dichotomy between nature and what society puts on you. I mean, when it comes down to it, there is an obsession in this whole community with genitals, right? Because like we're talking about the uh, the intro of this film. When Ludo is first introduced, at first we think that she's Zoe, right? Because the parents announce that Zoe's coming out, sure. our daughter Zoe, and then we see Ludo and she's wearing this beautiful pink dress and she has roses in her hair and everyone applauds. Yay, Zoe. I feel like before puberty, like kids just look like kids. Yeah. There's really no difference between boys and girls at that age. It's just how parents dress them up. Exactly. So there's nothing to tell me at first glance of Ludo that she's not a cis girl. Mm, yeah. And so that really makes me feel as though this entire community is just thinking about her genitals, which feels really invasive and weird to me. Mm. Like that's the only thing that sets Ludo apart from other girls. Right. That's the only thing that the parents have a problem with. Right. Which is insane to me. They're sexualizing a child. Mm. I mean, we get into the XXXY conversation later on, which I think is brilliantly handled that... It fell in the trash. Exactly. Her other X chromosome got lost in the mail. Yeah. So back to this opening, the status quo is established so beautifully between all the colors we've talked about, all of the parents arriving. This whole neighborhood is pleasant, unblemished. There's seemingly nothing wrong with anyone. Everyone's in a good mood. No one's fighting. Even though later on in the movie, you learn the sort of secret internal conflicts of all of these households. There was a 
death in the family. Like various families have their own issues. But in the first 10 minutes, you see none of that. You only see how happy and lovely everyone is. It's a suburban utopia. Yeah. And then Ludovic is the one to disrupt it. Not the fact that it wasn't perfect to begin with. I feel as though to keep this feeling of utopia, it depends on rules and routines. Mm. That's why we see that montage in the beginning of all of the husbands zipping up their wives and all of the wives getting into their beautiful dresses, all the families coming. I think a scene later, we see all the families getting their kids ready for school. Mm. Every family is picture perfect. Mom, dad, couple of kids. And it's purely the existence of Ludo that threatens that routine, that tradition. It threatens so much just this one girl wanting to like wear a skirt to a birthday party. Everyone is completely up in arms about it. And I think the film does a really good job at making us understand the arc that her parents go through. That it's triggered by the fact that they live in close vicinity to the father's boss. Yeah. And his job is threatened because of the boss's reaction to Ludo's identity. And it causes this ripple effect, this snowball, that these parents who at the start of the film seem pretty like genuinely okay with who Ludo is. Because they think it's going to go away. Right. I think that the overt transphobia of Albert, his boss, actually just acts as a catalyst to bring out the transphobia in these parents that was always lingering under the surface. Sure. I think if they had any indication that this was going to continue being a problem, they would have been this angry from the beginning. I mean, I think the boss adds to it because it's now a tangible threat, but I think they only laugh at it at the beginning because they don't even take it seriously. Like that's how transphobic they are. That they It doesn't even occur to them that it's a real thing. I think what's so interesting about prejudice, just all prejudice in the world, is that nine times out of 10, it just comes from ignorance. It just comes from not having ever been exposed to that thing that you're scared of. We could say these parents are transphobic and they clearly are at certain moments in the movie, but it's more so that they are just offensively ignorant to what is happening with their child. That they think it's wrong simply because they don't know what it is. They don't know what trans identity is. So they assume that Ludo is doing something wrong. If they lived in a world where trans identity was commonly talked about the way it is now, I wonder if they would have responded to Ludo in a different way. Right. That's an interesting idea. I mean, now you hear parents all the time embracing their children's trans identity, letting them dress however they like, letting them change their names. Those parents today have just been given permission to do that. These parents had never been given permission by society to embrace Ludo. Mm-hmm. If they had been given permission, this whole movie might not have existed. And these parents would have just been like, oh, wow, okay, there we are. Fabulous. Let's move ahead. Or they may have had the same exact reaction because of the real threat to their family from the boss. And granted, if they were good parents, they would say fuck you to the boss and love their child. But yeah, that's an interesting question. If these parents were less ignorant, would they respond in the same way? I mean, I don't know, because it seems like they're pretty poor parents. I don't know. It it breaks my heart that this movie needs to exist. Do you know what I mean? Like, it seems so obvious to me that that if your kid is telling you something this clearly, Mm -hmm. like Ludo's very articulate. She's a really smart, clever child. She's telling the parents exactly what she needs. Right. And they just completely have their heads up their butt. There's also, because of this world that's built in the film, it seems as though there is a strict patriarchy in the husbands having jobs, the wives Mm -hmm. staying home, and 
So I also feel as though that plays a part in the feeling of threat the family feels, and particularly the mother feels, when her husband loses his job. Mm -hmm. Like if she had her own job, I feel as though she wouldn't be as angry with Ludo for this chain reaction. So let's talk about Ludovic. Mm -hmm. The driving beautiful force of this movie. First of all, the young actor who plays Ludo. George Dufresne. Oh, what a performance. Like, heart-stopping. Yeah. I'm so obsessed with the simplicity of this performance that there's nothing conscious or deliberate or put on about Ludo's sense of self. Like, she's just a girl and sees the world that way, and it's really not any more complicated than that to her. And the simplicity of that is so striking. She makes choices in the movie that seem so active and bold to everyone else, but to her seem so obvious. Right. Wearing a dress in this moment, wanting to stage a wedding with her friend. These are things that just seem natural to little girls, right? right. That's just things that little girls do. She's sort of described... By the school, by her parents, by people in the community as this rebel. Right. She's really not. She's pretty run-of-the-mill a little girl. She wouldn't identify with rebellion at all, I think. She's pretty happy, like, just living her life. It sort of reminded me of Thomason in The Witch that as far as these two young girls are concerned, they're pretty dutiful and easygoing and relaxed and just trying to do their thing. But... Their existence, as far as other people are concerned, is a huge problem. She keeps asking people throughout the movie if she's a boy or a girl. And I notice that no one gives her the answer she wants. She keeps asking this because she's a child and children want answers from adults. But Ludo knows the answer and keeps waiting for someone to confirm that answer back to her. Mm -hmm. And no one's doing it. I clocked that it takes 20 minutes for the mother to explicitly say a boy can't marry another boy. That's the first time that Ludo has been directly told that she can't do something because of her sex. And Ludo says she knows this, but you can tell that she doesn't understand it. Like, it doesn't really make sense to her. She doesn't absorb it. She just sort of says, yeah, I know, as if it's like a formality. Right. I mean, because at that point in the film, she doesn't identify with being a boy. It's sort of clear in the movie that she's never identified. She's known as long as she's been, like, conscious that she's a girl. The mother at one point references how Ludo is seven now, so you're too old to still be dressing up in costumes. Yeah. Which means that Ludo's been doing this... For ages. For her whole life, probably. Yeah. Yeah. And the family probably thought it was cute... For a while. Yeah. And even as the movie starts, it feels pretty warm between all of them. Yeah. She has a great relationship with her mom. Mm-hmm. She has a great relationship with her grandma. Even the dad, yeah. sort of, until like 15 minutes in. Yeah. That they love their kid. Yeah. I want to go back to the reference that Ludo is seven, because it's said a couple of times. And I'm glad we're starting with this movie, that we're starting with a prepubescent character. Mm -hmm. I think it's really important that Ludo has no relationship to puberty. Mm -hmm. Ludo's body has not yet gone off in a direction that seems sort of incongruous with perhaps her identity as a girl. And I think that gives the film a lot of space to be nuanced and beautiful and complicated because there's nothing to suggest to Ludo that she's not a girl. Mm -hmm. And only being prepubescent could have given her that. You know, if this movie was made five years later into Ludo's life, it would be a tremendously different movie. That makes me sad, though, to think that Ludo's already gone through all of this heartache Mm -hmm. in early childhood. And And it's only going to get harder. 
Right, exactly. And it's so devastating that Ludo is all alone with this, right? I mean, today, with the internet and with how far we've come in a lot of these conversations, if a young child is trans, at least there are visible resources out there for them to seek out and get some sort of validation or enlightenment about what they might be feeling. Ludo is completely in a vacuum. She has no idea what the problem is, which is why it's very interesting and satisfying when we meet Chris at the end. Oh, yes. (laughs) That there are other kids exploring their gender identity and gender expression. Mm -hmm. They also exist. No, I think that's such an important moment to find kinship at the end of this journey, to know that she's not alone. Although what's also really sad is they don't really have a very kinship-based dynamic. It seems sort of clear that Ludo is terrified of Chris because Chris is going to encourage this behavior that Ludo has faced such consequences Mm. for. Ludo doesn't want to play with Chris doesn't want to trade clothes because at that point Ludo has been so trained to hate this part of herself. I will say there is one moment of rebellion from Ludo that I have to point out that the school could have been in the right saying that Ludo was rebelling in a actually... For Snow White. She stuffs a girl in a closet and (laughs) steals her clothes and locks the door. legit fine (laughs) sure like i know the parents were all signing that petition for a different reason right it wasn't because she was a troublemaker it's because she was trans exactly i mean that's a funny moment but (laughs) like what do you make of that i think she wanted to play snow white yeah and she couldn't you know audition for it they wouldn't have cast her she just wanted to play snow white and kiss and, and get a kiss from the cute prince played by the boy she had a crush on that's all she wanted that's so fucking simple it's so fucking innocent Jeez. <laughs> no i agree locking a child in a bathroom is probably a bad choice <laughs> uh-huh. yeah jerome is interesting because jerome clearly loves her <laughs> Yeah. And wants to hang out with her. And when he says in class that she's going to hell, and then she runs to her sister crying. Well, first of all, that's my favorite shot of the entire movie. When she's hugging her sister through the soccer goal. Yeah. Like through the net, that there's this net between them. Yeah. It's so beautiful. Yeah. But yeah, Jerome has a hard life ahead of him too. Yeah. As far as his dad is concerned... He has a son who's attracted to another boy. Right, that's how the father sees it. Albert, his dad, also references the fact that he's lost one child and he doesn't want to lose another to God. Like, that's really heavy. I think the last shot of Jerome when the dress flies out of the suitcase in the back of the car and falls at Jerome's feet, as if to say, this journey isn't over for you. Mm. Yeah, Albert, that whole family was was a very interesting way to say the same thing that had been said with Ludo, but in another way that there are these rules of suburbia and these rules are being broken. Not just by Ludo, not just by Jerome, but by the fact that their daughter had died, which is not what they wanted to have in a picturesque suburban family. Mm -hmm. And you can really see that trauma in Albert when the two dads are talking. You know that all they wanted was this very rigid, pleasant, lovely suburban appearance. And all of these children are sort of ruining that for them. And that's really painful. It's really beautiful. I like that they gave even the minor supporting characters 
real depth there. So because this movie is so well written, it's really satisfying how all the individual characters have very specific responses to Ludo. You know, the therapist really tries to understand Ludo and is not jumping to judgments the way that the parents want her to. The therapist lets her play, lets her go at her own pace, and makes it very clear that if Ludo doesn't want to commit to this therapy, then she can't help her, which is really nice. Sort of the same thing with a school teacher. The school teacher is really just trying her best. And so I was really grateful for her efforts that she was trying to make things easier for Ludo. Mm-hmm. But neither of them really did enough, the therapist or the teacher. I don't know what else they could have done that was in their faculties. It had to be the parents. Well, Like it's not a teacher's job to save a child. It's a parent's job to save a child. I think it was the therapist's job to tell the parents that they were in the wrong. Oh, totally. Yeah. That they were actively endangering their child mm. with their ignorance Mm. um yep i agree with that like this all leads to ludo i don't know if it's a suicide attempt when she puts herself in the freezer and holds that cross as if she's like in a coffin it seemed pretty clear to me that it was a suicide attempt yeah that's all on the parents and it's the therapist's job to make sure that all of this doesn't lead to something like that yeah it's true i agree another person who has a really particular reaction is the father who Goes and does chin-ups out in the garden. That was a very fun image. <laughs> when he feels threatened by Ludo not wanting to express herself as a boy, he needs to, like, go work out. It's very funny. I was struck by the kind of overt expressions of masculinity versus mm. femininity in yeah. the film. That was striking to me. Another was seeing the differences between how boys and girls are supposed to play. That when Ludo mm. is thinking of how can I behave in the way that a boy is supposed to behave, she immediately goes to, okay, I'll play with guns. Yeah. She sees her brothers playing with guns and like shooting each other yeah. in the yard. And then her next step is, okay, I'm I'm going to try to aggressively kiss a girl. Like, yeah, she pretty much forces herself on this girl. Yeah. In the street. And the girl's like, get off me. Well, that was a really devastating scene too, because what the girl says specifically is I don't kiss other girls. So now she's not enough of a boy to get by and she's not enough of a girl to get by. There's sort of nowhere for Ludo to turn. That must have been very confusing. Yeah. So we're presented with these different versions of what masculinity is supposed to look like. And they're all aggressive. They're all destructive. They're anti-color. There is this very strict patriarchy in this town that I wonder, even if Ludo wasn't trans, if Ludo identified as a boy, people would still be threatened by a boy exhibiting feminine traits. And liking pink and wanting to play with dolls. Yeah. And wanting to kiss the neighbor boy. Yeah. It's so funny now watching the TV show Friends that everyone sort of ubiquitously loved in the Mm -hmm. 90s and 2000s and now returning to episodes that are so overtly problematic and horrible. That show has aged just awful. But there's one episode where Ben, Ross's son, is playing with a doll and Ross like loses his shit. Mm. And this is supposed to be very funny. And I'm sure 20 years ago, you'd have like, you know, an audience that might have been amused by that. But now Ross just seems totally irredeemable. Mm-hmm. And yeah, it's, it's like what you're saying that Ben wasn't exploring his gender identity. He was simply playing with a doll because dolls are awesome. And this was right. so threatening to Ross. I just think it's so important to say that the patriarchy is 
just as limiting to men as it is to women. Absolutely. When we first meet Jerome, it's when he's asking his dad why he has to wear a tie, a bow tie, to the party. And he says it's too tight, and the dad is like, mine's too tight too. And I feel like that's just like another example of the ways that men and boys have these very structured rules about what it means to express masculinity. Mm. Children have absolutely no concept of why they have to wear something so stupid as a bow tie, right? There's no way to logically understand that (laughs) until you're an adult and you realize I'm wearing this because it's tradition, because Mm. society tells me that I should be wearing this tie. Yeah, to respect the formality of the occasion. Right. Children don't understand formality. Right. I barely understand formality. <laughs> so I think that's a really interesting metaphor of of the ties, you know, the ties that bind people to their, like, gender roles. Mm. Let's talk about the mama. Great. Let's talk about Ludo's mama, who I got a lot of mixed feelings about. Yeah. What a great character. What a bad mom. <laughs> Yeah, it's so weird. I start the movie loving her. Yes. She looks like Natasha Richardson in The Parent Trap. Oh, right? I mean, that haircut, gorgeous. It's like late 90s mom peak. I had a moment watching this movie, like a brief moment when I was like, I should get my hair cut like that. <laughs> <laughs> Aw, I'm envious that you even have that option. It's so bouncy. <laughs> So we start loving her. Yes. We have this gorgeous dancing scene at the beginning of the film. With the three generations of women. Yeah. Where she's so loving to Ludo. Yeah. Then we get this like adorable haircut scene when she's like, I'm just going to cut this much. And she does. She wants all her kids to express themselves the way they want to express themselves. And then it turns a corner. Yeah. And we've been thinking that the sort of bad guy of this movie was going to be the dad. Right. And it turns into the mom. Totally. And the dad sort of lightens up by the end of the movie. Yeah. The dad sort of like hits rock bottom, but he loses his job and then their house is vandalized. Right. He's lost this ideal of masculinity. And therefore, he's sort of liberated. Yeah. He's like, well, I've lost everything, so I might as well just relax. Yeah, that's And I really might as well just love my family, love my kids, and sort of let go of this thing I was trying to aspire to because I'm clearly not going to get it. He's not going to be this ideal image of a suburban father. So he might as well just be a human being after that. Right. So he has this really lovely arc. Meanwhile, mama goes crazy. Because she's powerless. Yeah. She doesn't have her own job. She depends on her husband's job. Mm-hmm. She depends on that security of knowing that they have this perfect life. So yeah, she really becomes the villain in the second half of the movie. And it's really hard to watch. This is going to tie into our conversation about Real Women Have Curves, where so much of body image when you're a child is trying to have the body that you know your mother wants you to have. Mm. That wasn't entirely what I experienced as a kid, but it's what I know pretty much all of my friends deal with. That your self-esteem, looking at yourself in the mirror, is completely related to what your mother thinks. Mm -hmm. And this mom is sort of the epitome of that. She wants a son. She wants to have three boys who act the same, look the same. She is not interested in what Ludo is bringing to the table. Mm-hmm. And she expresses that in sometimes very emotionally violent ways. Yeah. She yells at Ludo. She's constantly commenting on Ludo's clothes. She says that all of the problems in our family are your fault. She even hits Ludo at the end of the film. Mm-hmm. 
I think in that moment when they're at the party, it becomes very obvious to the people around them that she's in the wrong. She is a bad mother hitting Mm. her child. Yeah. Over something that they all seem to think wasn't a big deal. And that was very interesting. That this new neighborhood interprets children wearing gender-bending clothes very differently than the last neighborhood, which Uh was very threatened by it. So I wonder... At the end, I sort of had this moment the first time I watched the movie where she wakes up from her dream Mm -hmm. and she has this change of heart Mm -hmm. that it felt a little unearned to me. Me too. But I wonder if it's actually in response to the environment that Hmm. she's just someone who is so affected by what other people think. She loves adhering to the rules. And if the rules change, then she will change. So it's not exactly that she changed herself, she changed her own point of view. It's that she was suddenly allowed to have a different point of view. Absolutely. My dad and I had an interesting conversation recently about the shift in point of view of America regarding gay marriage. That until a certain point, it was just ubiquitous that people did not believe in it. And then it turned a corner and then it became ubiquitous that everyone believed in it. Right. You look at like democratic politicians who like voted against gay marriage like 10 years ago. Yeah. But also I'm talking about individuals, that individuals were given permission to believe something else. And so they very quickly did. Mm -hmm. Once this mother entered an environment where she could have a different opinion about Ludo, she very quickly did. I'm not really going to give her any credit for that because she should have been like that in the first neighborhood. But regarding her change of heart at the end the particular reason I didn't think it was entirely earned was it seemed that she had this change of heart because she has this vision that Ludo wants to go off with Pam and leave her forever and so now the stakes are really high that the mom is like I'm gonna lose my child forever if I don't get my act together well a that's great but b why the fuck didn't you have that realization when your kid tried to kill herself an hour ago in the movie I have another theory about that dream sequence which is that It's a Wizard of Oz parallel. Oh, yes. I thought the same. There is a yellow road. (laughs) Ludo is wearing a blue dress. (laughs) And Pam, the Glinda figure, is sparkly and blonde and flying. That makes the mom in that scene the Wicked Witch. I think she wakes up from that dream in, like, a very parallel image to, like, Dorothy waking up from Oz. And everyone surrounding her. She's even wearing, like, a gingham dress. (laughs) And I think she realizes that she doesn't want to be the Wicked Witch. Sad, but kind of too little too late? Yeah. I don't know. I agree. Because I really liked the mom when she was a good mom. Yeah. Do you know who I love? It's the grandmother. Yeah, the grandma's great. She's the best. Um, Totally chill. But also I think the reason people tend to have such great relationships with their grandparents is because the stakes are just so much lower because (laughs) you are not responsible for this child. You only see them so often and then you send them home to their real parents. I think grandparents have the luxury and the privilege of not having to be mean or to have arguments because they're not as closely connected to those kids. The mother even says to the grandmother on point, oh, what, you're giving parenting advice? Where was that parenting advice when you were raising me? So clearly there's baggage there that this grandmother wasn't always a very good mother to her own kid. So she sort of has more space to be good to Ludo. But maybe that's good. It was sad. I felt like it was a really good solution when Luda went to live with her grandma, even though it was like devastating that the other kids have like the privilege of living with their parents. But like Ludo had to get out of that toxic environment. Yeah, I would agree with you, except they didn't send her away. Like Ludo asked to live with her grandma. It's what she wanted. Right. 
She shouldn't have had to want that based on how abusive her home was, but it's not like they exiled her. Right. She has a really interesting scene with the grandma when the grandma, Elizabeth, by the way, spelled exactly the same as you. AKA spelled correctly. Okay. <laughs> Elizabeth with a Z. I just look at it like my stomach turns. <laughs> how is uh, uh, Queen Elizabeth spelled? She's she's the queen. She can spell it however she likes. <laughs> They have a really interesting scene together when the grandma tells Ludo to close her eyes and picture the life that she wants. She's sort of explaining that you can indulge in a fantasy as long as you don't feel the need to like manifest it in real life. But she relates Ludo's identifying as a girl with her own wanting to be young again and beautiful, which also felt off to me that... She feels as though she's not allowed to wear beautiful dresses anymore Mm. that show her skin because she's too old. That's also a stupid rule that is meaningless, you know? Like, she could wear a beautiful dress if she wanted, and she would probably look super hot. Mm. She's only been told that she's, like, too old. Obviously, we're talking a lot about the story and the character development, but... The way this movie is shot is so interesting. Mm -hmm. I just want to unpack the colors, the way the camera moves, how bizarre it is, this back and forth between fantasy and reality. It's so good. Mm -hmm. Similar to when we talk about the fits, this movie has one foot in reality and one foot in fantasy. Mm -hmm. You sort of don't know the genre of this movie for a while, which is so exciting. The main way that they express this, which we've talked about a little bit, is the colors. First act It's very pink, very warm, very saturated. And then when the parents reach a certain moment of not being able to tolerate Ludo, the colors really shift. It's blue, it's gray, it's stark. It is not happy anymore. It's really muted. I think it happens right after the play. The play is sort of the climax of color. We're in this fantasy world of Snow White. Yeah. And then we leave the theater. We leave that fantasy and we move back into the real world. And the color is left behind. Yeah. As this whole community turns their back on this child. Yeah. And then when the scenes are not based in realism, we have have all of these crazy fantasy sequences of things flying and Pam like half the world is kind of a Barbie home video (laughs) right Pam is so funny love Pam that big fake blonde hair the big tits the long (laughs) legs I hate when you say the word tits it makes me so uncomfortable there's no good word to describe what we're talking about like breasts is stupid boobs is stupid tits is stupid it's all stupid there's no good words and that's because the patriarchy imprisons our language (laughs) there's no like empowering word for that anyway (laughs) tatas But yes, to your point, they, whatever they are, are like hanging out of her dress. Yeah. Which I think is very important in telling about what Ludo sees femininity and womanness as. The scenes where Ludo is flying with Jerome or just flying in general with Pam, it's so nice. I feel like flying is such a lovely theme of childhood. Yeah. That when you're young, you think you can fly because you haven't learned yet that you can't. I feel like that's a pretty lovely metaphor for this movie that Ludo doesn't know she can't fly. She doesn't know she's not supposed to be a girl. It represents freedom and it represents agency. I love when they fly in this movie. There was also an important moment though when Ludo imagines herself flying in a beautiful dress with Pam and sees herself down below dressed as a boy. Yeah. 
Yeah. And it's as though she's outside of her body watching her life happen. Yeah. From above. And that just struck me as a really beautiful metaphor for watching yourself put on the costume of how other people see you. Mm. And trying to fit into that image while knowing that you're clearly something greater and more beautiful. Mm. There's this beautiful line in the second episode of Transparent Mm -hmm. where Maura comes out to her oldest daughter. And Sarah, her daughter, says, so you want to dress up as a lady from now on? And Maura says, no, my whole life I've been dressing up as a man. Oh, it's so good. It's so beautiful. And I think that captures a lot of what this movie is, is putting on a costume to either appease other people or to be yourself. Mm. Love this movie. So glad we talked about it. We have to move on. We gotta. We gotta move on. We have two more amazing movies to talk about. And the next is The Fits. I love The Fits. What a fabulous movie. I saw The Fits for the first time for this podcast. Me too. And I was like, what the hell that I've never seen this movie before? I've never heard of it. I know. It's so good. I actually had the same experience with Mavi on Rose. I mm. Both of these movies are movies that I watched for the first time because I was researching cool movies about women for this podcast. There are a few movies that since having started the podcast, I can't imagine my life having not known about these movies. I know. You know? Like, imagine a life where you didn't know that The Fits was a movie. Yeah. It's silly. (laughs) (laughs) The Fits is like a perfect movie because it so brilliantly achieves exactly what it's supposed to achieve. Yeah. On a micro budget. Yes. I sort of can't comprehend how much this movie accomplishes with A, a minimal budget, and B, in an hour and 12 minutes. Yeah. This is by far our shortest movie, and it is still so dense. There is such nuanced storytelling. Mm-hmm. Every moment is such a punch. And this movie is like as long as a TV show episode. Yeah. <laughs> it's so good. So, The Fits premiered in 2015 at the Venice Film Festival. It was written and directed by Anna Rose Homer in her feature film debut. Bless. With additional story by Sayla Davis and Lisa Kerderuff. And it stars Royalty Hightower as Tony, which, first of all, amazing name, Royalty <laughs> Hightower. <laughs> You're like a Game of Thrones character. <laughs> This movie takes place and was filmed in Cincinnati, Ohio, and it stars a real drill team as the dancers in this film, who also were given authority over the script. They could add or subtract lines as they wish, and they also had part ownership of the film, which I think is amazing. That is amazing. And to go into some of the casting, so there were apparently about 300 girls on this dance team in real life, and 40 of them ended up being in the movie. So they auditioned to be the dance team in the movie and then amongst those 40 they work together on the film for about a week or two and then from those 40 they auditioned the girls for the speaking roles to play Tony and Beezy and whatnot. Wow. and so even if Royalty Hightower and the other actors with lines didn't get those roles they still would have been extras in the movie mm-hmm. so that's really exciting that when you see these giant ensemble scenes with all these girls this is very much a real life community and the girls who are more heavily featured like Maya or Legs they are also in that community they were all this like one dance team mm-hmm. which is fantastic yeah let's just start at the beginning the opening shot so mesmerizing gorgeous even before we see anything the first thing we hear is one, yeah two, tony three, counting her four, sit-ups so good 
It's so good. It immediately puts us into this world where physicality, athleticism are hugely important. It's the language of this movie. That's how impactful it is. She's making eye contact with us as if we are the mirror. We are her judgment. We are the people that she needs to impress and beat. Mm-hmm. And we're first establishing this mirror in an athletic context. That She's doing sit-ups in a gym. She also makes eye contact with us in the same mirror later when she's looking at her ears being pierced. Mm. So now she's reframing her surroundings to signify different aspects of her interests and her gender. Amazing. That mirror used to signify sit-ups and now it signifies looking at her ears being pierced. We'll get into those differences as well. Yeah. Her gender identity as it transforms. I'm also just like immediately struck by the quality of the picture. Mm. As soon as the film starts and we're looking at her face, it's so HD. (laughs) And I think in contrast to some of the other low budget indies that we've talked about, which are grainy grainy and like shaky cam, it almost like the quality of the camera work in this film film heightens the intensity of the story and the emotions that it is as worthy of a story as like any huge like Oscar movie you know sure that's so interesting I never thought of it that way but yes because the picture quality is so crisp probably also because of the fluorescent lighting Mm. right like the lighting is so bright and shocking in this movie too Mm -hmm. yeah it feels a lot more confrontational which is great Mm. before we get into the specifics there's two really really important sort of stylistic rules that this film sets up. One, there's minimal dialogue. Yeah. There's just no dialogue in this entire movie, which means that the main communication we have from Tony's perspective is her body. Yeah. That's how we understand what's going on with her. The quietness of the screenplay, it like forcibly redirects our attention to the way her body looks and moves. Not only her body, but all of the body. Right, exactly. And so form and content become dance partners in this movie. It's not like Tony's character development is over here and then what we're looking at is over there. Like we're learning about her soul through the way her body moves. Mm -hmm. It's so brilliant. So that's the first thing. And the second thing, I don't know if you experienced this when you were watching it, but this movie makes me question the genre of realism. Because yes, it's shot in a very realistic way, but what does that even mean when the (laughs) film is this poetic and gorgeous, you know? Like that aspect of it didn't feel realistic. Like this movie feels like a beautiful version of reality that I wish I lived in but like my real life is not as beautiful as this movie but you wouldn't say that it's not realism it's like poetic realism it's like a dance version of realism sure I just saw Roma oh fun I haven't seen it yet and is it similar in that way it is very similar in that way where there's minimal dialogue it's mostly about the beauty of the images Mm -hmm. it's filmed in the same like very HD crisp clear Mm. way really tight close-ups on people's faces and then wide shots of entire scenes Mm. and of course Roma is made by like one of the greatest living filmmakers Alfonso Cuaron it's not like the greatest living filmmaker right and I think that to say that this film is like comparable to that film from a first time premiere director I think that's amazing everyone should go see Roma it is just 
breathtakingly beautiful. But see, isn't that interesting that like right now everyone's talking about Roma and it's on my list and it's totally in like the awards conversation right now for this season. And you're saying it's comparable and that's so interesting because I had never heard of the fits before. It doesn't seem to be that popular or known. It's just very interesting like what gets mass popularity and what doesn't. Mm -hmm. Because if you had told me when I was watching this movie that this was the like Oscar baby of that year and everyone was obsessed with the fits and Royalty Hightower was like nominated for an Oscar and all this attention happened around it, I would totally believe you. But in fact, this film did not get any mass attention at all. So (laughs) just sort of shows you how popularity is sometimes inconsistent with quality. And it makes me wonder, you know, we talk a lot about filmmakers versus the characters in their films. I think we do discuss more movies made by men than probably like other feminist podcasts talk about. Oh, sure. And it makes me wonder if Alfonso Cuaron were... If he were to have done this, it would have gotten attention. Yeah, like if Alfonso Cuaron would have debuted Roma at the beginning of his career, Mm -hmm. would it have gotten the attention that it is getting now because Mm. he has this like reputation as a brilliant filmmaker already? Well, look at Tangerine. I mean, Tangerine exploded and Sean Baker became like super famous and successful sort of overnight right that didn't happen with Anna Rose Homer though if you look at the quality of Tangerine and the quality of this movie they're like both fucking incredible movies yeah so what's that about I don't know why isn't this movie more famous why isn't Anna Rose Homer like as famous and talked about as Sean Baker yeah who's to say but Anna Rose Homer we fucking love you we love this movie we can't wait to see what you do next yeah actually now that I think about it this whole conversation's like making me angry (laughs) (laughs) this is really frustrating yeah right I don't know I'm like upset now. I know. (laughs) Like this movie should have been like the indie darling of that year and everyone should have been talking about it. Maybe I'm underestimating how successful it was, but I feel like I would have at least heard about it, that it existed, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think so too. Like we had, we had to find this movie. Mm -hmm. We had to like find it in feminist conversations on the internet. Mm -hmm. God, everyone go watch The Fits. It's so good. It's so good. It's as good as any of these other really popular indie movies that then get a bunch of Oscar nominations. Right. Anyway, let's go back to talking about why we like it. Yeah. I love the way that the camera follows Tony through this story. Yeah. We are deeply in her perspective. We're hardly ever even watching what she's seeing. Right. We're usually just watching her face as she's experiencing things. Yeah. Like some of the fits will happen off screen while we're just watching Tony's face watching the fit happen. Absolutely. My favorite moment of that is when they're all out in the hallway and Beezy is imitating someone's fit. And you can tell occasionally that Beezy is like flailing her arms or her legs and she's like committing to this performance and she's having fun imitating this fit. But we don't see any of that. We just see Tony like confused and curious watching Beezy. Like this whole story is happening off screen. I think that's so cool. And I think they could could have easily directly shown us all of the fits happening Mm -hmm. but most of them happen in the corner of a screen or like far away you hear the sound effects and you see like a bunch of girls surrounding the fit happening you kind of see Beezy's and you kind of see Maya's but not even not really right it leaves this layer of mystery yeah I read a review of this film that said it asks more questions than it answers yeah which first of all 
all, I think that that's the mark of a truly artistic piece. Mm. And second of all, it means that we're able to take whatever interpretation from this film that makes the most sense to us. Or that makes the most sense to Tony. Right. Because we're only seeing it from her perspective. Mm-hmm. This is sort of in conversation with Mavian Rose about a young girl who is pretty sure of her relationship to her body and only begins to question it once sort of society comes in and influences her and invades her. Firstly, the first few shots of seeing the lionesses is so striking. She sees them through the window and they're having a dance battle. And then a few minutes later, she's walking through the halls and this like giant stampede of girls laughing and Mm -hmm. yelling comes in. It really feels like an invasion of femininity and female energy. But Tony on her own is sort of genderless as far as she's concerned and And if she isn't, she's, if anything, more masculine. Her body is so strong and muscular. She's so sure of the way she moves. She expresses herself physically the way that her brother does Mm -hmm. in the gym, not through dance and not through even playing. You know, she's not really silly or childlike until Beezy enters her life. She's really serious and masculine. She's like a hard worker. Yeah. She's pretty confident in this routine, this like exercise routine that Mm. she's figured out with her brother. I got the sense that Tony was a, quote, tomboy, Mm -hmm. not because she had, like, any idea of any kind of, like, gender identity or... Or tomboy culture. Right, or even an interest in sports Mm. and exercise. It really felt like her brother, who is super sweet and kind and protective of her, is like her hero. And she just wanted to be like her brother. So she probably got into this workout routine with him because she just wanted to hang out with him. And it seemed like he had this job at the community center and he would just bring her along. And so she would sometimes like clean with him. It felt like she just wanted to do whatever her brother wanted to do. And then she starts to notice this world of girls and her ideas of heroes changes as she sees legs, Mm. as she hears the boys talking about legs, that she's so cool, she's so hot. To me, the number one thing that this story explores is physical power, whether it's a masculine physical power or a feminine physical power. And Tony is just interested in accessing that physical power. I agree with all of that. The one thing I might challenge is I don't think that she was interested interested in working out at the gym purely because she wanted to be like her brother. This is a girl who clearly loves expressing herself and communicating through her body, whether it's working out in the gym or dancing. Like this is a girl who uses her body to express herself. I think it was a lovely fortuitous sort of coincidence that her brother was the vessel for her to express that through the gym. And then a step beyond that, she joined the lionesses and learned how to dance. I think she's always had this profound relationship to her body. I totally agree. I think it's a coincidence that she has an older brother who loves working out. That's the reason she ended up in the gym rather than in the dance team to begin with. Oh, I see. You mean if she had an older sister... She would have been. On she the would have just team. joined the dance team in the first place. Yeah, I exactly. See. Yeah, and the film presents these two parallel worlds. Yeah, that like you said, they're separated by the door in the gym with the glass window. Yeah, the boy world in the gym, and then the girl world in the basketball court. 
Mm. And these two worlds have some similarities that Tony recognizes, like the beautiful sequence of the girls being measured. And then the next shot is the boys being weighed. Yeah. You know, like both of these worlds are reliant on your body doing its job and being the right shape and size. Uh But you're just measuring different things for different purposes. I also noticed that both worlds are expressing a physical power through sexuality. Oh. That the girls dancing is provocative. provocative. Yeah, it's like sexually fierce. Whereas the boys, we have seen sometimes of the girls like watching the boys work out in the window and saying how good they look and that they're showing off, Mm -hmm. you know? Like they're taking their shirts off to box to like show off for the girls. Mm. So there's a sexuality attached to both of these physical powers. And what's so brilliant about this movie is like the movie establishes both of those worlds and protocols and Tony is learning about both of them through the course of the movie. Mm-hmm. Like she's never thought twice about her size until the older girl comments on how skinny she is. And now she's suddenly aware of that she's smaller than she's maybe supposed to be or the other girls are. The first time we see her being self-conscious is when she goes to the bathroom to change oh. instead of changing in the locker room. I wonder if that thought of hiding her body had ever occurred to her before. Right. You know, like she's learning about male expression and female expression all in this rec center. This rec center is sort of the microcosm for the world. Mm -hmm. Her relationship to her brother is so interesting because for the first half of the movie, he treats her like a boy, not in any malicious way, but he treats her with respect, like an equal, like someone who's worthy of his time. And so she sort of had to forgo any idea identity as a girl when she was with her brother. They barely even noticed that she was a girl until she joins the dance team and then suddenly things start to change. Mm -hmm. She and her brother don't get along as well. They're suddenly like bickering a little bit more. Dante, her brother's friend, says, you're growing up fast, little legs. And she smiles. He comments at another point, oh, you're with them now. Mm -hmm. Like suddenly there's now this bridge between her and these boys that she's grown up with her whole life and has had pretty good relationships with. Now she's a girl. And so things have to change. Things are different with her brother now. But also it it's her brother who sort of gives her permission to join the dance team in the first place. Yeah. Which I loved. He's a good brother. I loved him. Yeah. He has more lines than she does, I feel like, right? <laughs> I feel like he talks more in the movie than Tony does. Maybe. I think everyone talks more than Tony does in the yeah. movie. BZ certainly does. Legs does. Oh my god. I love BZ. BZ! I related so hard to BZ. Love BZ. <laughs> She's great. I love her introduction eating the gummy worms. <laughs> She's so cute. And there's one shot of her just leaping through the gymnasium. Yeah, I took note of that too. It's such a gorgeous shot and she's so little compared to this like giant room, but she's just like exuberant with (laughs) happiness. Yeah. She's so sweet. I also love the scene when the three of them are out on the curb and the adult comes up and says, how are you feeling, Bianca? Referring to BZ. And BZ turns to Maya and Maya answers for her. And she says, she's feeling better. I just feel like that was something that absolutely happened when I was a kid where mm. someone like didn't want to answer for themselves and they said, you you talk for me. Tell tell them I'm feeling better. And so Maya just doesn't miss a beat, says she's feeling better. Right. <laughs> I also just love how much taller Maya is 
than Tony and BZ. She just had a growth spurt before the rest of them. I just think that's so cute and so real. That there's just like one randomly really tall girl. Totally. You know, we started with Mavian Rose, which is all about relating to your body as a child. Mm -hmm. But this movie, I think, is entirely focused on that liminal space of puberty Mm. when your body is changing right before your eyes. Yeah. Sometimes faster than your peers, sometimes slower than your peers. That scene when they're measuring their bodies and she says that she's a size 12. Yeah. That means she's a child's size 12. Oh. Which is crazy that she's like on this dance team with girls who are probably already wearing women's sizes and she's still wearing child sizes. Yeah. And what we'll discover through the movie is that the fits are these manifestations of intense change and energy. And we don't know if if it's an event like losing your virginity or getting your period for the first time. Like it could be any number of those things. But the fits, what they really represent are these milestones of puberty Mm -hmm. that Tony is at the back of the pack of. Right. She's just like racing to catch up to the other girls. Totally. Yeah, you phrased that really well, that it's a metaphor for puberty and growing up. But honestly, when the fits occur in the movie at various points, it's so beautiful and clear what it is, right? Like what Mm. it's about, that it almost doesn't even need to be labeled with one metaphor or one theme it's representing. Like it sort of is just the fits. Like it's this epileptic moment that happens in the same way that a rite of passage would be having your period or losing your virginity. Like in this world, there's just one more rite of passage that these girls go through, which is having a fit. It's so beautiful. Did you know that all of the actors who each had a moment of their fits choreographed their own fit? Right. Isn't that cool? Yeah. That it was between them and their own relationship to their character. Like how Beezy would have her fit, how Tony would have her fit, how Legs Mm. would have her fit. And then I think they would choreograph it privately with the director and perform it for the first time in front of everyone on camera. That's amazing. Yeah. Oh my god. So like the rest of the actors are really gasping. Yeah. That's Uh, so good. That's what they did in Willy Wonka. They didn't show those young actors what the chocolate room looked like. They wouldn't let them on set until they started filming. So when they open that big door and he starts singing Pure Imagination, those kids are really like, oh Oh my my God, God. look at this set. Wow. (laughs) The first time I watched it, I thought it was pretty clear what the fits were representing. But then watching it again, I realized it's it's a lot more open to interpretation. But this is probably just what I'm bringing to the table as an audience member. It was very clear to me that the fits were about ferocity and ambition and strength about this like forward motion of like I have to be the best it was about competitiveness it was about that feeling of realizing you want to be competitive you want to be ambitious and that's when you get your fits interesting and clearly watching it again that's that's one interpretation but it could be a myriad of other things so I wonder if anything what that says about me that that's probably what my fit would be about if I had one it would be about my relationship to competitiveness and ambition well I think because it's so tied to their bodies Mm -hmm. it's that competitiveness with how my body is fitting into the narrative of you know being a woman yeah it's a self-competitiveness yeah legs gets it first Mm mm-hmm because she's the leader. She's the hottest, coolest, yeah. best dancer. She's the ideal of the kind of woman they all want to be. Yeah. And then when she has to take a time out from the dance team, 
the next people who get the fits are the leaders who replace her. Yeah. And it goes from there. It also reminded me how when the younger girls started getting it, it reminded me of, you know, articles or studies out that girls are getting their periods younger and younger these days. That when we were young, the average age was sometime between like, you know, 10 and 13 or whatever. And now girls are getting their period even younger because of like, I don't know, the milk they're drinking. But now girls are getting it like eight or nine. Mm. And that progression of something hitting you younger and younger, that's what happens in the fits. You know, Maya and BZ and Tony get it by the end of the movie. But the movie started with the impression that only older teenage girls were going to get the fits. Right. And then it becomes infectious and moves its way younger. The first time I watched this movie, I was like dead certain that it was about periods. Oh, cool. Because that's just the narrative that like made sense to me. Mm. The conversations that the girls are having privately, like whispering about like... Mine was like this. Yeah, Mine was exactly. Like, this. like those were extremely familiar to me. Yeah, but specifically about periods. Right, exactly. Oh, cool. I distinctly remember in middle school, like sixth grade or so, mm-hmm. that there were like two girls in my class who got their periods mm. and like no one else had yet. Mm. And those two girls had this like weird bond mm. that they would like talk about their period over lunch <laughs> and they would like hold their stomachs together. Aww. And it was like they had this secret trauma that they both shared. I can't tell if that's really sweet or really annoying. I don't know. But then I realized I had the same exact experience in high school with like the first few girls who had sex for the first time. Mm. That they were these like milestones that other girls were hitting before me, right? Mm. And it was like simultaneously this like big traumatic event. (laughs) And also this, like, amazing victory. Yeah, a great source of pride. Right. But that's interesting that you have related other moments like that involving things besides periods, like losing your virginity, but that didn't occur to you when you watched the fix. Yeah, I don't know. Well, like, this time it definitely did. Oh, okay. But also, correct me if I'm wrong, when Tony is changing in the bathroom in that one scene and she hears Legs talking to another girl, mm-hmm. and Legs is saying that, like, Dante has to take her to the clinic. Yeah. Like, I assumed she was pregnant. Yeah. Yeah. I got the sense that she was pregnant, which means that the Fitz isn't about losing your virginity. It's like something even like past that point, right? It's like coming into your like sexual maturity or something. I think what's so complicated and beautiful and also kind of dangerous about interpreting this film is oversimplifying it to say that it's this or this or this. It's your period. It's your virginity. No, it's the fits. Like it's its own thing. It's its own beautiful, profound, visual thing that Anna Rose Homer just made up to encapsulate all of womanness, all of what it is to have a body and be a woman. It's so cool. She like transcended literal gestures of puberty by making up her own gesture in this very theatrical way. Yeah. So cool. And what we find by the end of the film is that it unites these girls. Like they become a girl army. Yeah. Because they've all had this experience. They've all lived through the pain and the trauma and the elation. Yeah. Pride. Yeah. And it bonds them together. And they become this like perfect, beautiful dance team. Mm. And we get that amazing montage of them in like the empty swimming pool. It's so good. Yeah. And the dancing too. We like haven't really talked about how incredible the dancing is Mm -hmm. in this movie. Like this is a dance movie too. Yeah. The dancing is so visceral. It's so aggressive. It's so fierce. It's like this celebration of life and strength. 
Mm-hmm. So to see them all united doing it at the end is really satisfying because you see moments of ferocity individually throughout the movie. You see legs doing it. And then that moment when Tony is on the bridge and she nails the dance sequence uh. for the first time. I thought these are the days that we grow up. You know, she looks like she's having so much fun. She accomplished something that she believed in and she worked really hard for. That's a real moment in someone's life when they experience that. When they finally achieve something that they cared about. Yeah. So cool. And then compare that to how bad they were at the beginning of the movie. Tony just could not dance at all. (laughs) And she works really hard. She really practices. So the ending. So beautiful. The first time I saw it, it blew my mind. (laughs) She flies. I was wondering how they filmed that. Like, is someone holding Royalty Hightower? Is she, like, on a harness? What's going on? Yeah. (laughs) I just imagine, like, adults just, like, holding her back. By her shoulders. I'm just obsessed that she's like wanted this for so long Mm. and she's wanted it so hard that she like makes herself fly. Yeah. Like she manifests this like superpower that (laughs) shocks all the other girls. Yeah. It's so cathartic. It's so satisfying. But then also on the flip side, it's also not cathartic and satisfying because the incredible sound design, you can still hear her panting. Uh You know, during that whole sequence, there's the beautiful music, everyone's smiling during the dance routine and then you're cutting back and forth with her and her fit. And the whole time you're hearing her like breathe heavily like she's fighting like she's struggling there's still a lot of effort in that sequence Uh too also i found myself thinking after we had already seen like so many girls have these fits already that they're all fine you know the fits happen and then they're fine but like they keep freaking out about it and i think Beezy even like brings this point up when they're all like sitting talking together that everyone's making a big deal mm. about this thing that's happening okay. to all of them, but they're all okay. Mm. And that struck a chord with me. Again, like not as like a direct metaphor to anything, mm. but actually to so many things. <laughs> right, to everything. Yeah. Yeah. That's really interesting. On top of the sound design though, I think this may be one of the best movie soundtracks we've heard so far, and we've had a lot on this podcast. Yeah. It's the best use of music ever. Oh my god. With so little. So little. Less is more. The first time the fits happen, we're hearing just like a single oboe making weird noises. There's a lot of ominous jazz. Yeah. (laughs) That was my phrase that I wrote down while I was watching. I was like, the fits equals ominous jazz. Uh (laughs) Uh-huh. When Tony is dancing on the bridge, the whole soundtrack is just like hands clapping. Yeah. And then, of course, the heart-stoppingly beautiful song at the end. The first time we've heard lyrics in any song on the soundtrack. Mm-hmm. And the lyrics are clearly in dialogue with the moment. Yeah. Must we choose to be slaves to gravity? As she's flying. Right. So clever. The idea that, number one, we're slaves to gravity, which means that it controls us. Mm. Number two, that it's a choice Mm. that you can overcome gravity if you try hard enough. Of course, flight is like this beautiful metaphor for so many things. Yeah. Of like achieving your dreams and like becoming the person you're going to be. That's what we talked about in Mavion Rose. Both these movies feature flying. Amazing. (laughs) Also at the end, on top of this incredible song and on top of the panting, we hear the birds tweeting from when Tony was standing in the pool earlier, just like looking up at the sky. We hear these birds 
which are creatures of flight. They are the masters of flight. Mm. God, the sound was so good. And also beyond the sound, just all the close-ups of Tony. I know we talked about this already, but I just can't get over how detailed and respectful and beautiful. There's so many shots of Tony just like doing shit. Like taking a sip of water from the water fountain became this like epic poem, you know? Or at the beginning of the movie, she's rolling that water jug down the hallway. And I was like, I could watch this girl roll a water jug down a hallway for hours and would be riveted. (laughs) The looks on the faces of the girls as they watch Tony have her fit. Yeah. There's something about that image that like, strikes this like really deep-seated chord in my heart of like wanting to impress other girls oh that's interesting that like tony's fit is more powerful scarier cooler than all of the other ones we've seen so far Mm. i remember always resenting as a kid how if a boy who liked me called me pretty that would mean one thing but if a girl called me pretty. Like if a friend or classmate called me pretty, it was a totally different ballgame. Yeah. It meant so much more. And I'm not saying that to condone it or to like justify it because that all seems fairly problematic. (laughs) But I just remember feeling that very, very deeply that getting the approval of girls thinking I was pretty meant more. When I watch this movie, I have this theory and I think about it a lot especially with the art that I'm like trying to create that nobody thinks teenage girls are extraordinary and like not even themselves like it's a real fight as a teenage girl to like prove that you're special and to me this movie just like fights for that idea that teenage girls are not only special but they're like extraordinary and not only teenage girls but black teenage girls Wow, I'm so in love with this movie. We say that about all of our movies, but I truly, truly, deeply mean it about the fits. (laughs) Not that I don't mean it about the other movies. I just love the fits so much. Yeah, I could watch it again and again. Everyone, please go watch the fits. Yep. So now we're ending our conversation with real women have curves. The women are real and they have curves. (laughs) Let's talk about them. Okay. The women and the curves. First of all, let's talk about the title and the concept. I have an immediate aversion to the phrase real women. Right, as if to imply there are women who are not real. Exactly. If they do not have that thing, like having curves. Right. I think what it's saying in a sort of like very like 90s slash like 2000s way before like I think we had the kind of like vocabulary that we do now about Mm -hmm. feminism is that women outside of the like stereotypical ideal of Mm -hmm. femininity are real women. Um, Yeah, the line hasn't aged well, sort of in the way that Megan Trainer got a slight bit of averse reaction to she has a lyric in all about that bass that like shits on skinny girls. Sure. We don't we don't believe in shitting on skinny girls. We don't want to shit on anybody. We just want to be included. <laughs> That's all. I had this realization pretty recently actually that took like my entire life to come to. Oh god. But what's happening? It was basically that human beings have way less control over what their body looks like than I think we've been trained to think that we do. Yeah, you said this to me when you had this thought and it really freaked me out. <laughs> well, I think that people are trained to think 
like, if you're fat, it's your fault. Mm -hmm. If you're skinny, it's because you worked for it and you deserve to be skinny. Yeah. It's this prize system that's, like, linked to the same kind of mentality as, like, privilege and capitalism. Mm. That, like, if you're rich, it's because you earned that money. Right. Rather than, like, you were born into a rich family and you've had privileges through your entire life that have led to this moment. Yeah. So learning that recently has been, like, a weight off of my mind that, Mm. like, this is pretty much the body that, like, my genetic code was, like, always meant to have. The point is, this movie has a fierce point of view of accepting and loving your body and that your body has so little to do with how you were defined as a human being. I, when I was a kid, I felt about this movie the way that I did about Welcome to the Dollhouse, in that there were like three good movies I could watch when I was a kid. Because many of the movies we're talking about on the podcast have come out since you and I have grown up. They've come out in like the last five or 10 years. But I remember watching Real Women Have Curves and it was like the only movie that I had that explored some of these themes. So like when I look at America Ferrer's performance, like I would not be the adult I am now without seeing her even just her body you know even just like walking the way she does and then on top of that she's giving an incredible performance so america Ferrera, i love you i'm so grateful to you everything you're fabulous (laughs) i remember you so well from the disney channel (gasps) gotta kick it up she made gotta kick it up and this in the same year amazing what a year for america (laughs) Ferrera. yeah i have it like ingrained in my memory just because i watched the disney channel so much as a child of her saying Hey, this is America Ferrera from Gotta Kick It Up, and you're watching Disney Channel. <laughs> zoop, 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 yeah. making the Mickey Mouse ears. <laughs> That's so cute. Before we move on, I have to introduce this movie. Real Women Have Curves was released in 2002 by HBO Films. Mm-hmm. It was directed by Patricia Cardoso with a screenplay by Josefina Lopez and George Lavu, based on the play of the same name, by Josefina Lopez. So all three of these movies tackle body image from three different angles. Mavian Rose is about transness. The Fits is about physical strength and puberty. And then this movie is very specifically about weight. And you said a couple of weeks ago when we were planning this episode, it really wouldn't be complete in exploring American women's relationship to their bodies if we didn't talk about weight. And I'm really grateful that you volunteered that. And fortunately, we have this incredible movie that was just like waiting for us. Right. It is intrinsically tied to being a woman. Being a woman now, I think, in the last like hundred. No, I guess it's always been about it, hasn't it? Do you think that the stakes have always been this high to be skinny? Probably not. No. No, because I feel like in in other cultures and in other time periods, weight was tied to wealth because it meant you could eat more. Like skinniness was a sign of poverty. So I think in some cultures, being fat was a sign of like luxury and privilege mm-hmm. and gl- glamour. Mm-hmm. Not in this one. Although women wore corsets for hundreds of years to like make themselves look thinner. Totally. Like literally cutting off their circulation, sometimes like having ribs removed from their body to make their waist smaller. That's like a Hunger Games shit. I know, right? right? <laughs> but people actually did that and, and do that. Yeah. I think it has a lot to do with expectations of femininity that it's tied to like delicateness Mm -hmm. that women have to take up less space yeah both literally and figuratively right they have to be dainty yeah and anna is so amazing because she is 
loudmouth, opinionated. <laughs> she takes up space in a number of ways. Right. What takes up more space, her personality or her body? Right. Such an amazing question. <laughs> and she seems to be pretty comfortable and confident with both. Yes. Which is why I think when I said earlier, like, I wouldn't be the adult I am now without that. That's totally what I embrace now about myself, too. Mm. I take up a lot of space. My soul takes up a lot of space. And my body does, literally on the subway. And <laughs> that's just something that I have to deal with on a daily basis. And movies like this made that so much easier for me to navigate. Which mm-hmm. is why we need more movies like this. And yeah, I mean, this is obviously very subjective to me. But I think it's so profound and beautiful when you can point to a work of art and say, this made my life easier. You know? Mm-hmm. Like, how many plays and movies and books can say that. I feel like this movie, when I was a kid, genuinely made my life easier. Yeah. Should we also just quickly give exposition because our listeners, like, can't see us? Should we, like, give a little bit of our bodies (laughs) in this episode? You know, because we're talking about bodies. Oh, boy. We both have bodies, but being podcast hosts, our bodies are sort of irrelevant from this experience. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, like, should we give, like, a brief little body history of ourselves? What, like, this is what we look like? I don't know. I don't know how to describe my body. Well, I think that's a great exercise. Great. So I've been overweight my whole life in varying degrees of overweight. Right now, I think I'm the biggest I've ever been, but I'm also the most confident I've ever been and, like, the sexiest I've ever felt. Mm. So that's confusing. (laughs) (laughs) And that's a lot to juggle. I still feel self-conscious about the way that I feel self-conscious about my body. Mm, That's interesting. Because no matter how much I, like, convince myself through feminism that, you know, I have to love my body the way it is Mm -hmm. and stuff. Like, I will always carry the kind of destructive body image issues that I've, like, always had because, number one, I'm an actor, which is, like... So unhealthy. Unhealthy in so many ways. so emotionally unhealthy to be an actor. Yeah. What if I describe your body and you describe my body? Wow. (laughs) On one hand, that sounds like a huge, like, invasion of privacy. Oh, okay, fine. But no, that sounds great. I... I'm immediately uncomfortable. Oh. This is all, I... You have such a higher tolerance for being uncomfortable than I do. So I'm thrilled by this. I'm thrilled that you're uncomfortable. Well, no, that's not entirely true because, like, I feel like I have, like, strategically not yet talked about my sex life on this podcast. I don't know if that means I'm more comfortable with those things than you are. I think I just don't know how to shut up. I'm just an open book. I think what I'm trying to say is... I'm not sure if I practice what I want to preach on this episode. Great. That's really interesting. Of like full body acceptance because I have a long personal history with body image issues. Absolutely. So how would you describe me? Oh my, you're like blushing. You're so uncomfortable. (laughs) Sam, I would just, I'm going to be like neutral and then I'm going to get into opinions, but like neutral, you're short. You have like olive colored skin. You're adorable. Get your hands off your face. I want to see your face. (laughs) You're adorable. You have these like beautiful child rearing hips, which are in beautiful contrast to how otherwise tiny you are. You know, you come in this like tiny little package, but then you got these like big boobs and big butt. And it's just this fabulous concoction of tiny little girl and then fierce ass grown woman. (laughs) I would say that's that's your body, is this blending of grown curvy woman and then sweet fairy. Oh. 
You're half fairy, half grown woman. That's really sweet. Yeah, that's you. <laughs> and then you got this big wild Jufro hair, which is great. You are very proud of your midriff. I feel like when I think of your body or looking at you, I like picture your midriff <laughs> because like your midriff is always hanging out. You wear a lot of crop tops. <laughs> yeah, I think that's what I think of you. You stand turned out. Turned out? Yeah, like your, your feet turn out. You do that. I do. Of course I do that. You do that too. I do? Yeah. Wow. And you like, yeah, you, you walk like a kid. Oh, Which no. is what I do. What's up? You walk like, like you walk like that? <laughs> I do. It's like, <laughs> uh, yeah, it's so cute. And then you have these adorable little elven ears, mm-hmm. which are so sweet. They're so big. They're so big, but they're so cute. Like, you look like you're in Lord of the Rings. It's so cute. <laughs> Literally everything I'm saying I mean is a compliment, so you can interpret it however you like, but I think your ears are adorable. And you got these little, little dimples. And, uh, yeah, that's Sam, for listeners. That's what Sam looks like. I'm, like, nearly in tears. Why? I don't know. Because I see you? Because you have a receipt that people can see what you look like? because this is all just, like, triggering. (laughs) Even though it's all positive? I know. I don't know. But I was once, like, in a really intense conversation with with a group of people. Like, we were going around sort of, like, sharing our deepest, darkest secrets. Mm -hmm. It was, like, a bonding exercise Mm -hmm. in a cast. This is what actors do. (laughs) And one of the questions was, if you could be like a fly on the wall of a conversation of other people like talking about you, Mm. what's like the number one thing that would surprise you, but like in a good way? Mm. And my answer shocked me because these weren't what I think of as my values. Mm -hmm. But my answer was that they would be saying that I was beautiful. Mm. And if that doesn't, like, say it all. Yeah, sure. We put so much value on that idea. The idea of someone not thinking I'm beautiful overwhelms Mm -hmm. me, and the idea of someone thinking I'm beautiful overwhelms me. Totally. Anyway, so hearing you just, like, describe my body was, like, therapy. (laughs) When we were in college, I had a friend who really struggled in terms of her self-esteem with her acne. And she went into class with an acting professor and the professor asked her about her acne and just simply said, there's no judgment, just said, how's how's that going? Like, are you working on it? What, how do you feel about it? And she started crying for no other reason than it was the first time that someone gave her that receipt that they saw that she was struggling with it emotionally and struggling with it literally. And just being seen was enough to overwhelm her. That she was like, wow, you you see this. I'm not alone and hiding in this pain, but you actually see me. Yeah. Oh no, <laughs> I've ruined your life. <laughs> I'm sorry. Listeners, I've, I've made her cry. Or I haven't made her cry, but you're nevertheless crying. <laughs> This is heavy stuff. Real Women Have Curves is a really heavy movie. (laughs) This is everything I'm dealing with when I watch this movie. I'm glad that we're sharing it. This movie is really heavy for me to watch because all of this comes up. Yeah, it's like it shouldn't matter. It should not matter one bit. Mm -hmm. And yet, I think for a lot of us, it's the number one thing that we think about all day. Yeah. I have days where the core feeling or adjective around my appearance is embarrassment. That I don't want to go in public because I don't want to have to embarrass other people with my presence. I don't want to have to burden them with having to look at me. Mm-hmm. So I stay home just out of just out of embarrassment. 
it's not even shame. Like it's specifically like I'm embarrassed to look the way I do. And then other days I'm fucking gorgeous. And it just sort of, it's a big spectrum for me. Like my highs are high and my lows are low. I need to describe you. Okay. Before we go into it, maybe this is relevant or important, but I think the reason this exercise doesn't scare me as much is because I've, I've heard it all. I've heard all the negatives, you know, like I've heard the worst things that people could say about me. It's like what we were saying with the father and Mavian Rose. Like when you've already hit rock bottom, you can just be liberated. Like I've already been shamed about my body, so I might as well just enjoy it. Are you implying that I'm going to say something shaming? No, but I'm saying no matter what you say, it's not going to really affect me because my worst fear of someone saying something negative happened years ago. So I'm sort of over it. Uh-huh. I can just enjoy my body because this this fear that you might be feeling of, oh God, what is she going to say? Like I've already heard my worst nightmare of what someone mm-hmm. could say about me. So I'm, I'm sort of free. <laughs> anyway. Elizabeth, you're about 5'11". You are so short. I'm 5'8", Sam. <laughs> I just seem really tall to you because you are tiny. <laughs> But you have such a big presence mm. that I do think of you as just like naturally tall. That's really funny. Yeah, no, I'm 5'8", mm-hmm. but I maybe come across taller. <laughs> You're round. You have a round face. <laughs> you have the absolute coolest hair in New York. Oh. It's cropped short and it's dyed bright rainbow colors. <laughs> you have matching aqua glasses. Unlike me, you have very small, perfect little ears. Oh. You have short fingernails that never have polish on them. (laughs) It's true. And you have a necklace with a black gemstone that you wear every day that is very Elizabeth in every way. And you have a big body. (laughs) Squishy. You do. You take up, just like Anna, you take up space both physically and figuratively with your opinions. (laughs) And I feel comforted when I look at you. Oh, this (laughs) Well, we look at each other a lot. I feel like we spend most of our days actually looking at each other. (laughs) (laughs) You have one boob that's bigger than the other. Is that noticeable to like the public or is that just you? (laughs) Maybe I just like know that because I know you well. Now I'm just like staring at your boobs. Yeah. One is at least to me pretty noticeably (laughs) bigger, but I don't know if the rest of the world can tell. You can tell. (laughs) Well, you've told me. Yes. How was that describing me? Did that, was that easier for you? Was that harder? (sighs) Describing you was easier than hearing you describe me. Mm -hmm. Can I guess why? Sure. Because you're confident that you love me. Yes. Like you're confident that whatever you're going to say to me is going to be good and coming from like a pure place. Yeah. Whereas hearing your own good things, you may not believe. And that's so true to body image too. Just when I look at other people, of course you're gorgeous. Of course that person's gorgeous. Mm. But like, I would never believe that about myself. That's how everyone feels about you. Right. Well, I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) Oh my God. She's having a nervous breakdown, (laughs) y'all. Call an ambulance. (laughs) Well, okay. So can I bring up something else? Because sometimes we have conversations about like body privilege. Oh, sure. Right. And I think that like you in the past have like put me in the privileged category. Uh, More than I am anyway. Sure. Not Um, as much as, you know, a Victoria's Secret model. Right. But you can shop at thrift shops. It's little things like that. You can go to stores and just find your size. Shopping for clothes is 
absolutely a nightmare for me. Not for lack of interest, not for lack of passion or wanting to look good. It's just so much fucking harder for me to find clothes that fit and that look good. Because mm-hmm. nothing's cut from my body. So I think it was more that. Sure, yeah. I think when we've talked about it in the past, I just sort of felt like, I don't know, like I felt guilty for mm. my own shame over my own body. Like if you would describe me as thin... Mm-hmm. my brain goes to, well, I've thought of myself as fat my entire life. So am I supposed to like feel guilty about that? Like, am I wrong? Like I felt shame over my weight my entire life. Mm. And so for then to be told that you're skinny was confusing. Yeah. Yeah. And made me feel guilty for feeling shame. Mm. I, like I didn't have it as hard as other folks. So like, why should I feel shame? Well, it's all such a spectrum because all of that is true. You have had it easier than a lot of people. Mm-hmm. Even though that doesn't negate your entitlement to feel shame if you want to, you know? Like, you're still entitled to feel shame, although objectively you have had it easier than other people. I think so much of talking about body image leads to this comparative nature, one girl's body versus another, one girl's shame versus another. You know, there's sort of no way to talk about body image without inevitably including this energy of competitiveness, Mm -hmm. which is such a shame. I certainly never meant to make you feel like you weren't allowed to have your feelings of shame, Mm. even though none of us should be ashamed. And B, the, the point still stands though, you know, that like you are objectively skinny, I would say. Like whether or not you can internalize that, that's sort of true regardless. But even that I struggle with. Yeah. Like hearing you say that right now, it made me feel like, so then, like, why... Why have I wasted all this time worrying? Dieting, yeah. Like, yeah. why have I been dieting since I was 14 yeah. if I'm objectively skinny? Yeah. And, like, worried about it constantly. Yeah. I don't I don't know. And I, I'm sorry to have aided in that revelation. No. <laughs> but it is. It's like, sure, yeah, I'm not, I guess, technically overweight if, like, there's a cap on, like, what weight right. is and then there's over that. Right. But I certainly don't have the body of the majority of movie stars. No. Right. Maybe that's what the title Real Women Have Curves is referring to, that like there's a certain kind of body that's like presented in media that the women in this movie completely break out of. Yes. Especially the scene at the end when they take their clothes off Mm -hmm. in the factory. But I will say that like those movie stars, I truly believe that like they had very little control over what they looked like as well. Yeah. That was just a roll of the dice as well. I'm going to tell a pretty personal story, if that's okay. Mm-hmm. So okay. this was like one of my first sexual encounters. And I was very nervous because you don't want to take clothes off with someone that you hasn't like earned that, right? Who you don't trust completely and feel safe with. And I remember giving like a disclaimer. I was like, you know, I'm, I'm overweight. Or I said something ridiculous, <laughs> like, in case this is a shock to you. And he just like shrugged. I was like, yeah, I know, it's cool. And I was like, oh, okay. And I took all my clothes off and literally nothing happened. Like exactly what he was just as into me. He was not shocked at all because plot twist, he knew what I look like. (laughs) He like already knew me. And I remember that night feeling so betrayed by the world, thinking my entire life has led to this moment of being so embarrassed and ashamed in this moment of having it fuck up one of my first sexual encounters that I was so self-conscious and then I didn't need to be 
Yeah. Because he was not only fine with how I looked, but was super into how I looked. I felt so angry that I had wasted all that time worrying that this moment was going to be tainted by him judging me. And then he fucking wasn't and he loved it and he loved me. And it was so, (laughs) I was like so angry in that moment. So yeah, I just, I remember the feeling being betrayal. I was like, I've been betrayed. Someone lied to me. I mean, I totally relate. And I bet a lot of people hearing that story will relate. When I first started having sex, I actually bought a book called Big Big Love. And it's a book about sex for fat women. Like, it was particularly that. I still Mm -hmm. have it. And, like, one of the big rules that they talked about in terms of being comfortable was get over the idea that he doesn't know how fat you are. He knows how fat you are. Get over that. (laughs) Stop trying to hide it with lingerie. Stop trying to hide it with lighting or certain positions. He knows. The cat's out of the bag. Like, he knows. Move on. Have fun. (laughs) That's awesome. That totally changed my life hearing that. Okay. I listened to Outlander Cast, (laughs) which is a podcast about the TV show Outlander. I think Outlander is equal parts incredible and terrible. (laughs) But I do listen to this podcast twice a week discussing the TV show. And they recently had a conversation that there are two types of people who have sex. There's people who like position their body in like a very strategic way Mm -hmm. to like make sure that they like (laughs) are like hitting the right angles, right? And then there's people who just like plop down (laughs) and they're like, this is what you get. Yeah, I'm definitely one of those two. (laughs) I thought that was so funny. Yeah. Shout out to Outlander cast. Yeah. And shout out to that book, Big Big Love. I don't Mm -hmm. remember who wrote it, but that book was really helpful. So we have unpacked so much already and we haven't even talked about the movie. But this was like what happened with Soulmate, right? Like just the premise of the movie triggers so much emotion and so many anecdotes. Yeah. When we were talking about fashion, it reminded me of one line in the movie where Pancha and Estella are talking and Pancha says, of course I would buy a dress like this if it would fit me. And that just sort of sums up my entire relationship to fashion, that I would have a weirder style. I would make bigger, bolder, more eccentric choices, but I don't. I wear yoga pants and I wear simple shirts Because they fit, they're comfortable, they're reliable. But I feel like if my body was included in sort of the larger national conversation of fashion, I would participate. And that's why I think Tess Holliday is a fucking icon. Mm. Because she somehow breaks through those barriers and those limitations. And she is so hot in everything she wears. But I don't know where she finds her clothes. I do think that the fashion industry is becoming a little more inclusive, like, right now. Slightly, but I still can't shop at most stores. Mm. So I don't know. But Tess Holiday certainly finds amazing clothes. Mm-hmm. One of my, like, favorite people in the world right now is Christian Siriano. Oh. Who became famous from Project Runway, and I loved him on Project Runway, like, <laughs> way back when. And now he is, like, really famous for creating looks for actors in Hollywood who don't fit into the generic image of, like, the Hollywood actress. Right, and I think a lot of the times actors who other designers won't design for. Yeah. Like Leslie Jones. Right, who, let's be frank, like, wearing Christian Siriano's clothes looks like the most glorious human being on Earth. Yeah. (laughs) Things like that just, like, go to, and Tess Holliday, like you said, like, go to show you that, like, this is not an objective reality. 
Like the idea that a skinny woman is beautiful and a fat woman is not beautiful. Like that's not like objectively true. That is like Mm. a system that has been formed from the fashion industry, from the media. From men. From the patriarchy, yeah. Gloria Steinem said, it's not just that we live in the patriarchy, but that the patriarchy lives in us. Mm-hmm. Wow. The idea that, like, fat women can't wear beautiful clothing, or, like, in Mavian Rose, that, like, older women can't wear beautiful clothing. Yeah, totally. Anyone can rock anything if, like, it's intended for them. Absolutely. I love the line when Jimmy says, you're not fat, you're beautiful, which I find so hysterical because that line's insane. I heard a comedian once say, don't tell me that I'm not fat, I'm beautiful. I'm both. Have you never seen skinny, ugly people? (laughs) (laughs) Right, yeah. Like, you can be fat and beautiful. It's not one or the other. Yeah. Like, I even see, like, Jonathan Van Ness. The greatest human alive. He's like taking the fashion world by storm, (laughs) wearing dresses and skirts and high heels all over the place. (laughs) These constructs are fake. They're fake. They're fake. They're fake. Yeah. And that's what real women means. Real women, meaning every woman, can have curves. She can be skinny. She can be whatever, whatever, whatever. Yeah. We've been talking about ourselves now (laughs) for a long time, but what are some examples of this conversation in terms of the movie? Well, it's like Mavian Rose. So much of Anna's struggle with her weight is entirely personified in her relationship with her mother. Mm. You know, it's not really the outside world. I mean, sure it is a little bit in Mrs. Glass and maybe some other forces that aren't seen on screen. Mm -hmm. But the majority of Anna's doubting her weight comes from her mother. It comes from the fact that her mom tells her not to eat the cake at her party in like the first 10 minutes of the movie. And she's constantly saying, if you lost weight, you would be beautiful. Which, side note, was very triggering because I have been told that so many times. Like, oh, you have a really beautiful face. If you only lost weight, then you'd be beautiful. Mm -hmm. You know, like a lot of this is her mom pressuring her to look differently than she does. Like, every woman in this family is fat. Mm -hmm. The mom even has a line at one point where she's like, it doesn't matter, I'm married. Yeah. Because it's all about what men think of us. Yeah. Meanwhile, we have this adorable contradiction where Anna learns that her mother is wrong because sweet little Jimmy loves her just as she is. Oh my god. (laughs) First of all, the cutest, (laughs) the most adorable. He is so starstruck by her. I know, he worships her. Yeah. From like the moment he's on screen. I don't want to say that like your positive body image depends on like external validation from a boy. No, but he serves a very tangible purpose in the movie, which is the the mother's only argument to Anna of why she should lose weight is to catch a man. And then that is immediately disproven right. by the fact that she pretty effortlessly caught the attention of a guy <laughs> just as she was. Yeah. So that whole plot line is fairly logical and straightforward to Anna. Like, well, if my mom wants me to catch a man, I just did that being exactly as I am, jiggling and all. Mm-hmm. Not to mention, America Ferreira is a adorable in this movie. Yeah, she's gorgeous. And she looks incredible in those overalls. (laughs) She looks particularly cool 
in the final scene when she's like walking through New York and she's like a college student. Well, I have thoughts about that scene that actually that scene to me seems a bit of an ode to her mother more than her rebelling against her mother. There's a scene earlier in the movie where the mother tells her how to walk because Anna is walking like a schlump and her mother tells her to have good posture. Mm -hmm. So I feel like that scene at the end is actually sort of a marriage of all these things. It's not, oh, I need to rebel against my mother to be strong and powerful. It's like, no, I can take some lessons from my mother and marry it with other lessons from other corners of my life to create a full person at the end. So I feel like there's something really beautiful about her mom's presence in that scene. There's certainly a physical transformation in that final scene. I think this movie represents the transition from adolescence to adulthood. Yeah, we started in Mm prepubescent, then we went through puberty, and now we're dealing with womanhood. Right, and I think that that final scene in New York is her coming into her womanhood. She's wearing makeup for the first time in the movie. She has her hair done. Mm -hmm. She's wearing a blazer. Like most of the movie, she's been wearing like overalls and t-shirts. Yeah. There is a certain kind of like, she's taking ownership of her body and worshiping it in maybe the same way that Jimmy did. Totally. And I don't think she would have had that transformation without the famous big climactic scene of this movie that everyone sort of thinks of when they think of this movie, which is where all the women in the factory start to take all their clothes off and finish working in their underwear, which is hysterical. It's amazing. Yeah. My boyfriend walked past and he was like, what are you watching? (laughs) Another moment that's really beautiful and important in that scene is when Anna lifts up her mother's shirt and sees that the mom, in addition to her weight, she's also ashamed of taking off her clothes because she has a giant scar from having given birth to Anna. Mm-hmm. You know, that there's a lot of other aspects to a woman having their body that we're not even talking about in this episode, which is everything else, childbirth and getting old and wrinkles and this and that. Like we're saying pretty myopic into self-esteem and body image in youth, which is fabulous. But I think it's lovely that the film gives one moment of energy towards what might affect other women's relationship to their bodies, like scars from childbirth. It does seem though that like, Even though that's the title of the movie and that scene is so memorable, Anna's body image is only a tiny slice of the pie of her entire identity. Absolutely. Which is why I love this movie. Right. She is mean. Yeah. She's mean. And then you meet the mom and you understand that meanness is a part of the vocabulary of this family. Uh You know, like she learned it from her mom, but... I am so obsessed with Anna's transformation that she grows from being fairly judgmental and closed-minded and angry at the world to learning how to be empathetic to people that she hadn't been empathetic for. Her relationship with her sister has this giant 180 shift. In the beginning, she sort of has no use for her sister. And then she comes to realize how hard she works, how much integrity and dignity Estella fights to have, considering the circumstances of her job, which, you know, Estella deserves more than what she's getting. She deserves more validation, more money. And by Anna working at the factory, she comes to respect her sister in a way that she never had before. Like all of that has nothing to do with their weight. It has nothing to do with their body image. That's just two really interesting characters growing as sisters. Mm -hmm. I think it's a fascinating detail that Anna takes like two buses and probably like walks a mile to get to her Beverly Hills High School every day. Yeah. Where she seems to be 
probably one of the only Latinx kids in the school. Yeah. Most likely she got into the school based on her exceeding intelligence and capability. Yeah, like academic merits. Right. Which I bet a lot of the other kids in the school didn't get in for. Right, it probably means that she's like in the top of her class. Yeah. And so... On one hand, she's, like, grown up in that high school environment and, like, has this chip on her shoulder about her home life. Mm. On the other hand, she has this incredible opportunity to go to an amazing university and sort of, like, spread her wings in that direction. Mm -hmm. But her mom seems completely unconcerned about how hardworking and capable and smart Anna is. She sort of seems unconcerned about those things with either of her daughters. Right. Like, Estelle is just an embarrassment to her. Right, because she's 29 and she's unmarried. Right, regardless of the fact that she runs this entire factory and seems incredibly smart and kind and is an interesting, nice person. Yeah, and she says about Anna, like, she doesn't do her chores, she doesn't help around the house. Yeah. She doesn't clean her room. She's studying. Yeah, like she probably doesn't have time for all of those things because she's a straight-A student. Yeah, who can get into Columbia on exactly. a whim. <laughs> yeah. I thought all of that was interesting. I think the mom is tremendously interesting. Yeah. I think there's a lot of humanity in the mother, and I really did empathize with her perspective towards her daughters, even if I didn't agree with it. Right. Well, all that to say, I love this movie. Just subjectively. I just love it. Yeah, I think absolutely. it's so great. This was sort of a heavy episode. I sort of expected this to be a light episode. Oh, I didn't. Oh. <laughs> bodies are intense, bro. I know, yeah. People don't like their bodies. Oh, God. <laughs> I feel great. You do? Yeah. Good. This is fun. I hope in this episode that we've asked more questions than we've answered. hey Call back to the fits. Yeah. <laughs> also, I've just sort of missed this structure because last two we did Hunger Games and Titanic. This setup we have of three movies in dialogue with each other, I really missed. Yeah. This is really fun. Cool. So now that we've spent this whole episode discussing how girls explore their femaleness, we're going to devote our next episode to how girls explore maleness. Yes. I'm really excited about this episode. It's called Girls Will Be Boys. We'll be watching three movies about women who disguise themselves as men. The first is the 1983 musical drama Yentl about a Jewish woman in 1904 Eastern Europe. The second is the 1998 animated Disney musical Mulan about a young woman in Han Dynasty China during an invasion by the Hun army. And the third movie is the 2017 animated drama The Breadwinner about a girl living in Kabul, Afghanistan, under control of the Taliban. I'm so excited. <laughs> I love these three movies. I know we say that every week, but like, yeah. Because we mean it every week. These movies are bae. These movies are fabulous. Go watch them. I know you've seen Mulan before, so spend some time with the breadwinner. And if you're Jewish, you've definitely seen Yentl. <laughs> <laughs> And if you haven't, shame on you, go watch it. And I doubt you've seen The Breadwinner, and for the love of God, watch The Breadwinner. It is so, so, so good. The Breadwinner is perhaps one of the best movies we've discussed on the podcast so far. I agree. I definitely agree. It's sort of in its own category, I think. The Breadwinner lost the Oscar for Best Animated Film to Coco, which is a big conflict in my heart because right. I really don't think you can make a movie more effective and thrilling and beautiful than The Breadwinner. But boy, do I love Coco. So <laughs> this just leaves me in a rut. <laughs> 
Have a great two weeks. We'll see you soon. Bye. Bye. Feminist Popcorn is produced and hosted by Samantha Rare and Elizabeth Frankel. Our theme music is by Barrett Riggins. Our cover art is by Hannah Perry. Keep up with us on Instagram and Facebook at Feminist Popcorn. Tweet us at official underscore fempop. And email us your voicemails at feministpopcorn at gmail.com. You can find descriptions and links to all of our movies on feministpopcorn.com. And don't forget to subscribe, share, and leave a review on Apple Podcasts. New episodes every other Tuesday. Sam, the movie's starting.